Amen, amen. Well, good morning. Oh, you guys can do better than that. Good morning. Okay, it's a little better, a little better. Well, for those that may not know me, my name is Brandon Reed, and I am the associate pastor here, Christ Covenant Fellowship. I want to thank you all for being here. Listen, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, I would love to do so before you get out of here. Introduce yourself to myself or maybe to Pastor Tyler or one of our church members. We would love to connect with you before you get out of here this afternoon. Listen, I'm excited for today as we celebrate the 4th of July. We celebrate Independence Day. I want to thank you all who have come out here to spend time with us this morning. Listen, so we are in week two of our six-week series in the Solas, covering a bit of the Reformation. So if you were here last week, then you know that Pastor Tyler did a wonderful job walking us through that introduction uh, to this series. We were given a good bit of background information as to what really inspired the Reformation and the creation of these five statements, these five solas. And what we learned is that these statements and really the Reformation in general was uh, spawned by or birthed by individuals in the church who had a desire to maintain doctrinal fidelity. Right? They had a desire to preserve the foundational truths about salvation and the Christian life according to the Holy Scriptures. You know, as we think about the Reformation, we must realize that it's really a call to return to orthodox biblical teaching. It was a battle for truth at a truly pivotal point in the life of the church. There were a lot of things being added to the gospel, right? There were things that were being made conditional for our salvation. And the things that were being taught by the church weren't actually in accordance with what the Bible teaches us. Now, just as that was the case in Martin Luther's day, right, just as he was battling those things in the 16th century, listen, there's a lot of false teachings and just misconceptions that we have these days, right, that are plaguing the church, some things that aren't necessarily helpful and some things that certainly aren't accurate according to what God's word says. So I just want to give you a few of those. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list. This isn't covering every single thing. But I just want to give you a few common misconceptions that we have as the church. Number one, this idea of the sinner's prayer, right? That the pastor will offer this invitation, you'll walk the aisle, you'll come down, you'll repeat after him, you'll pray the prayer that he prays, and now suddenly you're right with God, right? There's nowhere you're going to find that in Scripture, that you can pray a prayer one time and be in the right standing with God. That is not what saves you, right? Number two, attending church makes you right with God. Now, we want you here. Praise God. Amen. We want you to be here and gather together. But your attendance record isn't what God's going to pull up on Judgment Day. Right. Just because you come like I'm here on Easter, I'm here on Christmas, I'm here on Mother's Day. I'm good. Right. No. Well, it's not what the word tells us. Right. Your attendance doesn't make you right with God. Number three here's another one. Giving money to God so he'll give you something in return. Right. That's that's a really popular one these days. You see these guys, these televangelists. I'm not going to name names, but there's a you know who I'm talking about right there on TV. And they say, man, you send me this. God's going to send you that. It doesn't work that way. Nowhere in Scripture do you see that. In fact, and we're going to talk about this. I'll touch on this a little bit here in just a few minutes. But there's a parable in Matthew 20 that really addresses that. Listen, you can never, ever put God in a position to where he owes you anything. God is no man's debtor. Amen? Amen. Number four, here's another one. Some of these same guys, right? God wants everyone to be rich and wealthy. And the sickness doesn't come from God, right? That's a teaching that's very popular these days. We believe in God's sovereignty. We believe he's totally in control. He's ultimate over everything except sickness and tribulation, right? God doesn't want that for you. God doesn't have a hand in that. That's absolutely not true. This wealth and health and prosperity gospel, again, you're not going to find that taught anywhere in Scripture. In fact, you're going to find Jesus consistently rebuking the rich and saying how difficult it is for them to enter into the kingdom. Now, if you have money, if anyone in here is rich, well, holler at me before you leave. But just kidding, just kidding. Not to say that that's necessarily a bad thing, right, that you have money. That's, that's a blessing. But that also isn't what God wants for everybody, right? That's not God's design. That's not his intention for everyone to be rich. Here's another one. That hell is not a real 
place. Or if it is, that God would never actually send anybody there because he's just too loving. God is all love, right? We ignore the other attributes of God, his wrath, right? His righteous judgment. So there's this whole wave of people that say, oh, well, hell's not a real place. And even if it is, it's only for Satan and his demons. God would never send anybody there. Well, that's true in a way because we, we don't, God doesn't necessarily send anybody. Like that's a decision we make, right? Of course, in accordance with God's sovereign will, it's, that's a whole nother conversation. But the point is this, hell is a real place. Jesus speaks of hell as though it is a real place and a destination for those apart from him. Right? So don't ever buy into that teaching. Here's another one that all religions, all roads lead to God. That's not true. Now, that's unfortunate. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I'm just going to tell you what Jesus says. In John 14, 6, he says, I'm the way. And he says that no man can come to the Father except through the Son. So while that's a wonderful notion for us to all coexist and to live peacefully with one another amongst other religions, not all roads lead to heaven. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way. Lastly, moralism. Here's a, the last one. Moralism equals righteousness, right? That being a good person and having a good heart will get you into heaven, right? That's, a, that's one that's pretty popular these days as well. Well, if I'm just a really good person and I do all of the right things while I'm here, I hold doors open for people, I give to the poor, I do all of these great things, man, when I stand before God, I'm good because I've done more good than I've done bad. Again, that's, that's not a biblical principle. In fact, the Bible tells us none are righteous, that none are good, right? And in fact, having a good heart, what does that even mean? Because the Bible tells us what our heart is sick and it's desperate and it's wicked. So your moralism, your good deeds do not equate to righteousness. They will not put you in good standing with God. And the reason why I point to all of that is because, again, we're making the connection with what we battle here today and what the reformers were battling in that time. It was absolutely a crucial time for the church in the 16th century. However, here in the 21st century, we are also at a crossroads as the church. It's a pivotal time for us as well. We see so many leaning away from the gospel and pressing into this idea, yes, I'm going to go here, of this social gospel, of this social justice movement. And what we need to do is return to what the Word of God says. How does God define the gospel? What does Jesus say about his gospel message? What is God's mission in sending Jesus, Jesus Christ? What is the mission of the gospel? Is it to reform society? Is it to fix systems? If I read my Bible correctly, if I understand the gospel message correctly, it's to regenerate hearts. It's to save sinful humanity. Right? And we have this whole movement of these individuals, this whole cultural pressure that's weighing heavily on the church as culture attacks God's design for marriage. It attacks the idea of gender and sexuality and politics. And we have all of these worldly philosophies and these theories that are pressuring the church to conform. We need to be conformed to the image of Christ. We need to be molded and shaped by the word of God. Listen, we don't need these academic theories or these worldly ideologies because the Bible clearly speaks to all of these issues and it is sufficient in addressing all of these matters. Amen? Amen. Brothers and sisters, that is why it is so important for us to be saturated in God's word. So we're not swayed and persuaded by every idea of teaching that comes along. We must have a foundation that's built upon the truths of what God's word says according to the Holy Scriptures. And why that's so important is so that we're able to spot error, so that we're able to rebuke false teaching and correct all of these misconceptions. We have to be able to identify anything that doesn't square or align with the word of God. You see, and this was the motivation behind the Reformation period. To reform the church according to God's word. And during that time, what was at the core of the discussion? At the core of this argument was this foundational question. How is one saved? How is a person justified before God? You see, this doctrine of salvation or justification was just one of the fundamental truths that was quickly being corrupted. You know, if you recall last week, if you were here, Pastor Tyler shared about the Roman Catholic Church and its practice of selling 
indulgences. And it was this idea that you can essentially purchase your pardon. You can buy forgiveness for yourself or a loved one. And this idea that you could somehow accumulate just enough merit and earn your salvation, not just through your giving, right, but through the acts, through the good works that you could produce. As if we could somehow do enough to, or give enough, somehow do enough or give enough to warrant God's salvation and mercy. Again, that is not the case, and we have to understand why this discussion is important. We have to understand why this matters. And this matters because, brothers and sisters, how we understand salvation and the doctrine of justification will really inform the way that we interpret the rest of the Bible. It's going to determine the way that we read the Scriptures, and it's going to speak to the way that we live, the way that we understand this doctrine of justification. So these false teachings, these unbiblical ideas had somehow began to creep into the church, and this was essentially the catalyst for the creation of the five solas. This was the creation or the catalyst for the creation, sola gratia, salvation by grace alone. Now, I want to be clear. It wasn't that the church was teaching that uh, believers weren't saved by grace. That's not what the church was teaching at that time. The church was teaching that you were saved by grace and this combination of the good works that you could produce. But see, the reformers, men like Martin Luther, turned to the scriptures They read the scriptures and they found there that it's not of our good works. We are not saved by what we we do. We are saved by grace alone. It isn't grace in a combination of things. It's God's grace alone. That is how we are saved. And before we go any further, since this is what we're going to be discussing today, I think it's important for us to have a working definition of God's grace. This will be the focus for this morning, so I think it's important to define that, right? Words have meanings. We need to define these terms. So how would we define God's grace? And I would define it this way. Grace is God's unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor. God's unearned, unmerited, and undeserved favor. And here's the reality. Every single act towards us from God is a display of his grace. Everything given to us is God's grace. His provision each day even the little things that we overlook, right? God's grace. The gift of creation that we drive around every day and don't always take a minute to enjoy it, that's God's grace given to us. His convictions, right, from the Holy Spirit, that's God's grace. And get this, I know this is going to be a tough one, even God's discipline is gracious. Even God's discipline is His grace given to believers, See, and this doctrine of grace is essential to understanding our justification because the gospel of grace is the foundation that we build upon. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you are building upon anything else other than the grace of God freely extended to you in Christ Jesus, you're like the man who's built his house on sand. You're building on a foundation that will not last See, the reformers maintained that the sinner is saved by the grace of God, his unearned favor alone. This means that nothing we do, nothing you do, will commend you to the grace of God. And get this, this means we do not cooperate with God in any way in order to earn or merit our salvation. There is nothing you can do to force God to extend salvation to you. You play no part in that. It is freely given to you by God's grace. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to discuss God's grace displayed towards us. And I'm just going to go ahead and show my hand now. I'm going to lay my cards on the table. God's grace culminates. It climaxes at the cross in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. That is God's grace on display in the greatest fashion towards sinful humanity. You know, as Christians, we often love to sing about God's grace, don't we? We love that attribute of God. We love the grace. We love his generosity. We love God is so charitable and forgiving. I think we often misunderstand his grace. It's often abused. It's often misinterpreted. It's often misapplied. So in order for us to truly appreciate the grace of God and the fact that we are saved by his grace, grace alone, we must understand what we're coming out of. 
We must have a starting point. We must be clear on our desperate condition apart from God's grace. So what I want to do is take us to a portion of Scripture that I'm sure everyone in here knows. Most of you, if you've read your Bible at all, if you've heard any teachings on grace, you've probably read this Scripture before. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bible, turn there with me. I'll give you a minute to get there. Ephesians is in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with the Bible, that's okay. Ephesians is the 10th book in the New Testament, and it is sandwiched between Philippians and Galatians. So go ahead and turn there. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, and we will cover verses 1 through 10. All right, so let's, uh, let's read. I'll read these verses, then I'm going to pray and ask God to bless our time through the teaching of his word. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we come before you. God, thankful for this opportunity to gather together. Father, I ask that as I have this opportunity to teach the text, God, I acknowledge I am unworthy. I'm unqualified. God, my speaking is in vain apart from your spirit being at work. So God, I ask that you would speak through me this morning. Use me as your lowly servant, as your vessel to convey your message to your people. God, that I would only say what is glorifying and honoring to you, what challenges and encourages your people this morning. Father, and I pray that you would be glorified in it as we walk through the truths of these scriptures. We would see the glorious reality that we are saved only by your grace. And we thank you for that this morning, Father. Use this time, use me for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, what I want to do is simply just kind of walk through these verses right here, okay? I want to make three points, and actually, I should say I want to ask three questions. Three questions about the grace of God. Now, first I'll ask, okay, why is God's grace necessary? Why is it necessary that God extends his grace to us? Number two, we'll talk about, well, how has God displayed his grace toward us? Right? And number three, we'll determine, well, what are the results of God's grace? What does his grace accomplish for us? And throughout this discussion, I think we'll really be building a framework built off these texts for salvation by grace alone. All right, so number one, why is God's grace necessary? Well, let's start at verse one here in chapter two. And I'll read, it says, and you were dead, and we'll stop right there says, you were dead. Now, Paul says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Well, what in the world does Paul mean by that? Well, let's look at the Greek word that is used here for dead. And it's the Greek word nekros, N-E-K-R-O-S. Now, just a little background here, some words, some English words that we get from the word nekros, all right? We get necropolis, that is a cemetery. We get the word necromancy, which is communicating with the spirits of the dead. We get the word necrosis, which is the death of cells. We get the word necropsy, 
which is the examination of a body after death or an autopsy. We get the word necrophilia, which is obsession with corpses or dead bodies. I think we all see the connection here. I think it's e fairly easy for us to clearly see the meaning of this word. So when Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, that's exactly what he means. You were dead, dead, dead. And what can a dead person do? That's right. They can't do anything. A dead person can't do anything. So listen, as those who were dead, we didn't have the ability to act or to re even to respond to God's grace and his invitation to salvation. This is why God extends this by grace alone and by grace alone that we are saved. There is nothing that we could have ever done to warrant or bring about God's salvation. It is only given by his grace. You see, when Paul says you were dead, that dead includes you and I. And I know the reality of this. As a man for 33 years who walked away from the Lord, who chased after the world, who was dead in his sins and trespasses, I had no ability, no desire to seek or pursue God. I was dead. This was me. And the reality is this is every single one of us apart from Christ Jesus and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Every single one of us is dead. We are all dead in our sins. But what does it mean to be dead, though? Like, dead how? Maybe you're here and you're thinking to yourself, man, I am very much alive, Pastor Brandon. I have breath in my lungs. I can hear. I can see. I can touch. I can smell. I'm living and breathing. Even as we read through this text, right, Paul uses some language that may seem a little bit confusing. He says we walked, right? He says we followed. He says we even lived and we carried out these desires. See, all of that language implies that we were alive at least to some extent, that we were alive at least physically. So what does it mean when it says I was dead? Well, Paul isn't talking about our physical bodies. He's referring to our spiritual condition. And spiritually, as it pertains to the things of God and the things of the Spirit, we were totally dead. Again, no ability to seek God. No desire to pursue him. Spiritually speaking, we were dead, just corpses. Totally done. No hope. No life. Now, I think what Paul does here is he points us to three realities for those that are dead. First, Paul says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And this is a fundamental truth that we all must reconcile. See, in the garden, God told Adam, what? That as soon as you eat from this tree, you will what? You will die. You will die. So what we must understand is that a sin leads to death. And we see that in Romans 6.23, which tells us that the wages of sin is death. Or in James 1.15, that the desire, it says this, then desire when it is conceived give birth to sin, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So first and foremost, being dead in our sins means we are under condemnation. We are under condemnation. You see, God is holy and he is a just and righteous judge. And as the creator of all things, he is right to subject his creation to live according to his law and his standard. As creator God, he deems what is right, what is true, and what is just. But the reality is this, as descendants of Adam and Eve, as they are our original parents, we've all inherited the condition known as sin. It's part of our nature. It's who we are. It's in our DNA. Because of our sin, we have all violated God's law. Therefore, we all stand guilty before his holiness. We all stand guilty before this holy, righteous God. So we are accountable to his justice. So first and foremost, when it says that we are dead, that means we're condemned. We are all condemned. Second of all, being dead means we are under the yoke of slavery. Now, Paul says we followed the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. And we lived according to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. See, as those who were dead in our sins, we live to serve 
ourselves. We would not surrender or submit to God as the Lord and master of our lives. Rather, we served the world, we served the flesh, and we served Satan. See, we were in this bondage. We were dead. We were unable to free ourselves again. I can relate to this on so many levels, right? That was me for so many years. And I would even wake up and say, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm going to get free from this yoke and this bondage, but it doesn't work like that. I don't care how much ability you think you have. You can never wiggle out from under the condemnation or the yoke that's on you because of your sin. God has to do that for you. God has to do that. Right? So we are all under this yoke of slavery. In Romans 6, the Apostle Paul, he writes about this idea of slavery. Romans 6, 16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Brothers and sisters, apart from Christ Jesus, we are all slaves to the former, not the latter. Not the latter. So we're under this yoke of slavery. We're condemned. Thirdly, Paul says this. Those who are dead, we are under the wrath of God. Look what he says here. He says, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Because of our sin and because of our constant rebellion against God, we face God's wrath. He is right to aim his wrath at sinful humanity. Now, if you don't believe that, let's look at John 3, 36. Jesus says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But what? The wrath of God remains on him. That word remains there is really important to this idea. That means that's your natural state. You were born as an enemy in opposition to God, and his wrath is aimed at you, aimed at us because of our sin. And apart from Jesus, that's how we remain. That's how we remain, under the wrath of God. This is our condition from birth. Man, if you're in this room this morning and you're a Christian, do not make light of this. Consider the realities and implications of this. Man, if you are one that has been brought from death to life, who is no longer under the yoke of slavery, the condemnation and the wrath of God, man, I hope that this truth motivates you to share the gospel message with those around you. If you understand what I'm saying this morning, if you understand this idea of wrath and judgment and being born in opposition to God, I hope that motivates you to share this truth with the people in your lives. Because guess what? Until they're in Christ Jesus, they are still dead and under condemnation and wrath. So I hope that moves you to a place to evangelize, to live for Jesus Christ, to freely share this gospel message of grace and redemption and forgiveness and new life that's only available through Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen? All right, stick with me. Stick with me. Amen. Listen, we've got to truly understand God's salvation. Again, I think a lot of times we take this very lightly, right? We always use the word saved, don't we? Oh, well, I'm saved. Or is she saved? Or is he saved? And Do we really understand what we're saying there? Do we really understand the magnitude of what we're saved from? Again, the wrath of God, his holy judgment. This isn't some loose or small or flippant thing. This is a big deal. Understand the magnitude of your salvation. And within us, we have no ability to earn that. We have no ability to move from under God's wrath. Paul says we were dead. See, I think a lot of people don't get that. I think a lot of people look at salvation as, okay, I was drowning, right? I was at sea drowning, trying to do my best to stay afloat. And God just kind of throws me a life preserver. And then I drag myself to shore and I'm good. The more accurate depiction of that would be that you're dead at the bottom of the ocean with no life in your body, just a corpse. And God does all the work to bring you up, to drag you to shore, and to bring you to life where you were once dead. That's the more accurate picture of that. See, but I think that's where we have a a disconnect for a lot of people right there. They don't think they're dead. They don't believe that they're dead. So they don't think they need God's grace. A lot of people believe, man, I'm a good person. I do enough. Why do I need to be saved? And that's not what the Bible teaches us. We need a Savior because we are dead. So why do we need God's grace? Again, because we are dead. 
We have no ability to act or respond. God is the one who begins the work of salvation. He begins it, he ends it, and he is responsible for everything in between. The fact that we are saved, the fact that we are justified, the fact that we are attributed righteousness is all an act of God's grace. And our condition is those who are spiritually dead. We cannot be saved apart from God being at work and freely giving us this gift of grace. So if we understand that, right, if that's the first part of it, if we understand why we need the grace of God, the next natural question may be, okay, well then how has God shown his grace to us? Well, I'm glad that you asked because this is wonderful news. And the short answer, how has God shown his grace to us, is in and through Christ Jesus. Think about 1 John 14 and 16, or excuse me, John chapter 1, verses 14 and 16 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 16 says this, For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. You see, John does a wonderful job here emphasizing the abundant grace that we have received in and through Christ Jesus. See, Christ is God's grace displayed to sinners. But let's read verses 4 through 6 here. What does Paul tell us? And it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Paul has begun this section of his letter by reminding us that we're dead in sins, that we're slaves to the flesh and our passions and desires, and that we're by nature children of wrath. But here in verse 4, Paul directs our attention to this most glorious reality. And it begins with these two words, but God, but God, he says, being rich in mercy because of his love with which he has loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. He does what? He makes us alive together with Christ. Christian, if you're a Christian in here, this is the good news. This is the good news. Although we deserve nothing more than death and hell and the righteous wrath and judgment of God, the Lord is merciful. He's a loving God. And he's shown his mercy and love in the most incredible fashion by putting forth his only son, Christ Jesus, as a substitute for your sin, to pay the penalty that we owed. You see, the wrath that we had accrued by our sin and rebellion was actually poured out on Jesus. We didn't have to pay, though we deserved it. God has set us free in Christ Jesus. See, verse 4 says that God is rich in mercy and has a great love with which he has loved us. I want you to consider the reality of this today. If we define God's grace as his unearned favor, then an extension of God's grace or demonstration of God's grace would be his love and mercy given to you. Now let's think about what really makes this incredible. Let's think about what really makes God's grace so significant. And what I want to do is go back one chapter to Ephesians chapter 1 and look at verses 4 and 5. And this is what it says. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. See, what that text tells us is that he had chosen each of us to be beneficiaries of his grace and his mercy and his love before the foundations of the world. So you know what that means? That means God chose you and uh, chose to extend his favor and his grace to you before you could ever even make any kind of decision. Before you could ever make a profession of faith, before you could ever do anything good or bad, God had chosen to set his love and his grace upon you. I hope that highlights the reality and the beautiful magnitude of God's grace for you today. And that shows you that his grace must be freely given. It can't be earned. It was given to you before you ever even existed. 
Before you could be conceived, before you were in your mother's womb, God had chosen to set his grace upon you, upon sinful humanity. That's not something you could earn. That's not something you could bring about. Right? Verse 5 says that even when we were dead, he has made us alive together with Christ Jesus. You see, this is the grace and the divine power of God on display, again, in the most incredible fashion. For it is only creator God who can bring the dead to life. So what has God done? How has God shown you his grace? Well, God the Father has joined you to Christ the Son. And though we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, in Christ Jesus we have been raised to life. Brothers and sisters, God's shown you his grace by bringing you from death to life. And this new life that is afforded to us by God's grace reaches its climax in Christ Jesus, the perfect son of God. Let's look at 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12 says this, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. But whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Or we can look back again at Romans chapter 6. Paul writes this, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Again, this is wonderful, glorious language that our lives are now united to Christ Jesus and the life that he has. His resurrected life now counts for you. You are no longer dead in your sins and trespasses. Brothers and sisters, you are liberated. You are free. You are raised to new life. And that is all a demonstration of God's grace. Amen. Amen. God has shown us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now your resurrected life or the resurrected of, uh, life of Christ and the resurrected life of the believer are now intertwined eternally. Think about that, eternally. Eternally joined to Christ Jesus. So if we understand that God's grace is necessary because we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we understand that God has shown his grace to us in the most incredible fashion in Christ Jesus. Next, we'll say, well, what does that accomplish for us? What is God's grace? What are the results of his grace being demonstrated towards us? And let's look at verses 7 through 10. And it says this, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we as workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what I want to do quickly, three things. Results of God's grace. I want to look at three things God's grace accomplishes for us. Number one, what, God, what's, what God's grace accomplishes for us is that we are now beneficiaries of his eternal kindness. So why does God show us his grace? Verse 7 says that, so in the coming ages he might show measurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So listen, for those of us that are in Christ, you are no longer children of wrath. You're no longer an object of God's wrath. You are now a beneficiary of God's grace and his kindness, and that's shown to you through Jesus. His kindness is shown by allowing rebellious, sinful human beings to enter into his courts, providing us with a seat at his table where we can feast abundantly. In his infinite and loving kindness, he invites you to lay down your rebellion, to move from enemy to friend. See, God's kindness is extended to us by taking you from a child of wrath to a child of God. See, God's grace changes our very identity We're no longer what Paul describes in verses 1 through 3. Those who are dead in our trespasses and sins, children of wrath. We are now beneficiary of God's grace, his kindness, his mercy, his love. Again, that changes our very identity. Christian, that should give you reason to celebrate this morning. Amen? Amen. John 1.12 says this, love this verse. 
Love this verse. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Look at the emphasis there. He gave. God gave. It doesn't say they earned it or worked for it. It says God gave that to them. The ability to be children of God. That's not born of the flesh or of the will of man. Right? That is given freely by God. This is the kindness demonstrated towards each of us. So number one, the result is we are now children of God, beneficiaries of his grace. Number two, what are the results of God's grace? We are saved from wrath and condemnation. Again, this is great news. I hope not just for me today. We are free from the eternal penalties of sin. Romans 8.1 says, There is that now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, what does God's grace accomplish for you? It frees you from condemnation. It frees you from the wrath and the judgment of God. We have been saved by grace. And if we look at verse 8 right here in Ephesians chapter 2, because of this verse, we can truly plant our flag in the ground. We can hang our hat on this idea of being saved by grace alone. We can make a biblical case for that argument because of verse 8 right here in Ephesians chapter 2. What does Paul say? He says, for by grace you have been saved. In fact, this is the second time he says that. He says it earlier in verse 5, but here he adds a little caveat to that. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and what? This is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. We must understand that. Paul makes it a point here to remind these believers there in Ephesus that salvation is not a result of anything you do. It is not a result of anything we do. And I believe that this is one of the texts that the Reformers probably pointed to when establishing this biblical foundation for the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. Friends, I don't want you to miss this right here because this is the root of all we've discussed here today. Salvation is not to be earned as a result of your works or by your merit. Salvation cannot be purchased by any amount of giving, whether financial or otherwise. Salvation cannot be manufactured. It cannot be fabricated. It is not something that we are able to muster up or bring to fruition by the power of human will. Salvation is provided to you by grace alone. It is by his grace you are saved and nothing else. Nothing else. See, Charles Spurgeon says it this way. Because God is gracious, therefore sinful men are forgiven, converted, purified, and saved. It is not because of anything in them or that ever can be in them that they are saved, but because of the boundless love, goodness, pity, compassion, mercy, and grace of God. Friends, there's nothing you can do to add to your salvation can't force God to extend his grace. In fact, that would contradict the very meaning of the word grace. Grace is not something that is forced. It's freely given to those that don't deserve it. You know, this idea of grace often flies in the face of those who want to earn it. Those that take pride in their own performance, right? You think about the Pharisees, right? This idea of grace is offensive to the self-righteous. But I want you to understand this. God's grace shouldn't be offensive. It should be compelling, right? It should move you to a place of devotion and praise and humility and surrender. Especially when you remember, man, there's nothing I could ever do. I could never do enough to earn God's favor. And I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you can never put God in a position to where he owes you anything. There's a parable in Matthew chapter 20 of the laborers in the vineyard. I'm sure a lot of you are very familiar with it. And so there's this man who owns a vineyard, and he goes out early in the morning. He finds these guys standing around, and they're not really doing anything, not working. So he says, hey, come work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you a day's wage. Right? He goes back out a couple hours later. It's about 9 in the morning. He gets a couple more guys, brings them in, puts them to work, goes back out around noon, same thing. Goes back out around 2 or 3 in the afternoon, same thing. Goes back out around 5 o'clock in the afternoon, same thing. So he's brought in all these guys to work in his vineyard. And at the end of the day, he gets them together and he says, hey, let's pay these guys. 
what they've earned. Well, some of the guys that started earlier were upset because it's like, hey, how, how come you're going to pay these guys the same thing you paid us when we worked longer? And the owner of the vineyard essentially says, am I not right to do and give what is mine in the way that I see fit? It's the same with God. See, those guys weren't in a position where they could say, hey, man, you owe me this now. See, God is no man's debtor. He doesn't owe you anything except wrath and hell and judgment. But God freely gives, not because of what we do, but because of who he is. Because of who he is. 2 Timothy 1.9 says this, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Here again, another great reminder, before the ages began, before you could do anything, before you could act, before you could respond, before you could do any good works, God had extended his grace. He had chosen to set his love upon you. Paul writes here uh, to remind us that salvation by God's grace is not a result of works, so that no man can boast. This is to point the glory to God, to give him the honor and praise that he is due, but also to kill our pride, to kill any sense of pride that we may have. If you want to boast, boast in the cross, boast in Jesus Christ. And the result of God's grace is the salvation provided to sinful men. Finally, tells us here that number three, God's grace moves us to a place of good works. And guess what? One of those good works should be to continue to offer and extend the grace that you've abundantly received to the sinful people in your life, right? If you remember that you're a sinner saved by grace, freely offer that to those around you, right? That's another act of grace. Those are another uh, 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 demonstration of God's grace in your life to participate in these good works that it says he's created before the beginning of time. Right? God even gets the glory for the good stuff that you do. That's an act of his grace. Right? We're not saved by good works. We're actually created to walk in them for God's glory. Right? That should just be another outworking of the gospel of grace that is at work in each of us, that we offer grace, extend grace freely to those in our own lives. Listen, it's Independence Day. It's the 4th of July. It's a great day for us to celebrate, spend time with our family. As we celebrate the freedom that we have in this country, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand for those that are in Christ, you have been eternally liberated by God's grace alone. And that's not something you celebrate one day out of the year. And walk in that freedom. Celebrate that daily that Christ Jesus has set you free. Do not lose sight of the eternal deliverance you have by God's grace. A gift freely giving. There's nothing you could add to it. There's nothing you could take from it. It can't be compromised. It can't be earned. It can't be willed. It can't be fabricated. It can't be concocted. It can't be produced. It's not a result of human will. It is all afforded through the blood of Jesus Christ by the grace of God. Ephesians 1, 7 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to what? The riches of his grace. It doesn't say according to the will of man. It doesn't say according to man's good works. It doesn't say according to how much you tithe. It doesn't say according to how much you serve. It doesn't say according to your ethnicity or your political party or your gender or your status. It is all according to the riches of God's glorious and infinite grace. Amen, amen, amen. Listen, as we prepare to close our time together, I want everybody here to just stop for a second. I want everyone here to just pause for a moment and really do some reflection. Maybe you've been a believer for a number of years. You know, maybe you came up in the church. You've always been a part of the household of faith. Or maybe you're uh, newer as a believer. Maybe you've only been walking with the Lord for a short amount of time. Regardless of where you are, if you're here today and you've always had this idea that, yes, I'm saved by grace, I get that, but I also need to do this, but I also need to act and do that, in order to earn the Lord's love or the Lord's salvation. When you really take a moment and ponder on the glorious grace of God, right where you are in your seat right now, that means you put your head down and just be quiet, be still, talk to the Lord. Really think about where you're at with God's grace. 
Are you one who continues daily like, yeah, I get the grace part, but I know I also got to do this. Maybe that's what someone's taught you. Maybe that comes from your parents, right? Maybe you feel like you had to earn their love, earn their forgiveness. Maybe you feel like you need to do that with the Lord. And that's not what the Bible teaches us. It teaches us that God freely gives the gift of grace and salvation to those who believe. And that's an act of his mercy and demonstration. So I want you to ponder on that. I want you to consider the reality that, yes, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins, and we're unable to act or to respond. But God in his sovereign and divine will has chosen to set his love upon us to display his infinite grace by bringing the dead to life. And if that's you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, man, praise God for his grace this morning. Again, I think about my own story and where I was totally dead. What I felt like as far from God as I could possibly be. And there were so many moments in my life where I'm like, man, I just need to do this thing. I just need to stop doing this, and I need to put that down, and I just need to do these things, and God will love me, and I'll, I'll be free. I could never get from under the thumb of my own sin and the burden of my depravity. I couldn't wiggle free from that yoke of slavery. Sin, man, it was only by God's grace. It was only by his divine intervention that I'm free. And that's the story for each of us. If you're a sinner saved, it's by grace. If you're a sinner in here who's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, it is only by his grace. And it's my prayer and my desire that you would live with great hope, great humility, and great freedom as those saved by grace alone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are just in awe of who you are. Loving God who's freely extended the gift of salvation to each of us through the blood of Jesus Christ by your grace alone. God, I know that's something we could never earn, something we don't deserve, something we could never work for. So God, we are thankful that you loved us, that you've shown us your grace and your mercy, that while we were dead, God, you acted you sent Jesus Christ, your only son, to pay the penalty that we owe. And because of that, we are free. God, that you've raised us to life, but you didn't resurrect our sin. You didn't bring that back and put it in our faces. God, that we've been separated from that and we now are raised to new life and we can walk in righteousness because of Jesus Christ. Father, we are thankful for that reality this morning. I pray for those sitting in here under the sound of my voice, maybe those who didn't understand that before this morning. God, I pray that you would do a work in each of our hearts, that we would understand that we are saved by grace alone, and we would give you the praise, the glory, and the honor that you are due. That we would move into the world and share this wonderful message, this gospel of grace with those around us, all for your glory. God, use us today. Help us to honor you in all things. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.